CD5 It was just that she was fed up with books of etiquette and lineage and twerps peerage of the fifteen mountains and the stow plains. You had to know this kind of thing to be a queen. There were books full of the stuff in the long gallery, and she hadn't even explored the far end. How to address the third cousin of an earl. What the pictures on shields meant, all those lions passant and regardant. And the clothes weren't getting any better. Magret had drawn the line at a wimple, and she wasn't at all happy about the big pointy hat with the scarf dangling from it. It probably looked beautiful on the Lady of Shalott, but on Magrat it looked as though someone had dropped a big ice cream on her neck. Nanny Og sat in front of her fire in her dressing gown, smoking her pipe and idly cutting her toenails. There was the occasional ping and ricochet from distant parts of the room, and a small tinkle as an oil lamp was smashed. Granny Weatherwax lay on her bed, still and cold, in her blue-veined hands the words, I ain't dead. Her mind drifted across the forest, searching, searching. The trouble was, she could not go where there were no eyes to see or ears to hear, so she never noticed the hollow near the stones where eight men slept and dreamed. Lancre is cut off from the rest of the lands of mankind by a bridge over Lancre Gorge, above the shallow but poisonously fast and treacherous Lancre River. The Lancrastrians did not consider geography to be a very original science. The coach pulled up at the far end. There was a badly painted red, black and white post across the road. The coachman sounded his horn. Uh, what's up? said Ridcully, leaning out of the window. Troll bridge. Oops. After a while... There was a booming sound under the bridge, and a troll clambered over the parapet. It was quite overdressed for a troll. In addition to the statutory loincloth, it was wearing a helmet. Admittedly, it had been designed for a human head and was attached to the much larger troll head by string, but there probably wasn't a better word than wearing. "'What's up?' said the bursar, waking up. "'There's a, a, a troll on the bridge,' said Ridcully, "'but it's underneath a helmet, so it's probably official "'and will get into serious trouble if it eats people. "'Nothing to worry about.' "'Trolls, a life-form based on silicon rather than carbon, "'can't in fact digest people, "'but there's always someone ready to give it a try.' "'The bursar giggled because he was on the up-curve "'of whatever switchback his mind was currently riding. "'The troll appeared at the coach window.' "'Afternoon, your lordships,' it said. "'Customs inspection.' "'I don't think we have any,' babbled the bursar happily. "'I mean, we used to have a tradition of rolling boiled eggs downhill on Soul Cake Tuesday, but—' "'I means,' said the troll, "'do you have any beer, spirits, wines, liquors, hallucinogenic herbage, "'or books of a lewd or licentious nature?' "'Ridcully pulled the bursar back from the window. "'No,' he said. "'No. No. Sure. Yes. Would you like some?' "'We haven't even got,' said the bursar, despite Ridcully's efforts to sit on his head, "'any billy-goats.' "'There are some people that would whistle Yankee Doodle in a crowded bar in Atlanta. "'Even these people would consider it tactless to mention the word billy-goat' to a troll.' The troll's expression changed very slowly, like a glacier eroding half a mountain. Ponder tried to get under the seat. "'So we'll just trit-trot along, shall we?' said the bursar, his voice by now slightly muffled. "'He, he doesn't mean it,' said the Arch-Chancellor quickly. "'It's, it's the dried frog talking.' "'You don't want to eat me?' said the bursar. You want to eat my brother. <laughs> He's... <clears throat> well, no, said the troll. Seems to me that... He spotted Casanunda. Oh, ho, he said. Dwarf smuggling, eh? Oh, don't be ridiculous, man, said Ridcurry. There's no such thing as dwarf smuggling. Oh, yeah? Then what's that you've got there? I'm uh, a giant, said Casanunda. Giants are a lot bigger. I've uh, been ill. The troll looked perplexed. This was postgraduate thinking for a troll, but he was looking for trouble. He found it on the roof of the coach where the librarian had been sunbathing.
What's in the sack up there? Um, that's, um, uh, that's not a sack, that's the librarian. The troll prodded the large mass of red hair. Ooh! What a monkey! Ooh! Several minutes later, the travellers leaned on the parapet, looking down reflectively at the river far below. Happen often, does it? said Casanunda. Not so much these days, said Ridcully. It's like, uh, what's that word, Stibbons? About breeding and passing on stuff to your kids? Evolution, said Ponder. The ripples were still sloshing against the banks. Uh, right. Like, my father had a waistcoat with embroidered peacocks on it, and he left it to me, and now I've got it. They call it uh, hereditary. No, that's not... Ponder began with no hope whatsoever that Ridcully would listen. So, anyway, most people left back home know the difference between apes and monkeys now, said Ridcully. Evolution, that is. It's hard to, to, to breed when you've got a headache from being bounced up and down on the pavement. The ripples had stopped now. Do you think trolls can swim? said Cassanunda. No, they just sink and walk ashore, said Ridcully. He turned and leaned back on his elbows. This really takes me back, you know. The old Lancre River. There's trout down there that'll take your arm off. Not just trout, said Ponder, watching a helmet emerge from the water. And limpid pools further up, said Ridcully, full of, 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 of limpids, stuff like that. And you can bathe naked and no one at sea. And water meadows full of, 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 of water, don't you know? "'And flowers and stuff,' he sighed. "'You know, it was on this very bridge that she told me that she... "'He's got out of the river,' said Ponder. "'But the troll wasn't moving very fast "'because the librarian was nonchalantly levering one of the big stones out of the parapet. "'On this very bridge, I asked... "'That's a big club he's got,' said Cassanunda. "'This bridge, I may say, was where I nearly... "'Could you stop holding that rock in such a provocative way?' said Ponder. "'Ooh! It'd be a help!' "'The actual bridge, if anyone's interested, is where my whole life <laughs> took a different—' "'Why don't we just go on?' said Ponder. "'He's got a steep climb.' "'Good thing for him he hasn't got up here, eh?' said Casanunda. Ponder swivelled the librarian around and pushed him towards the coach. "'This is... The bridge, in fact, where Ridcully turned round. Are you coming or not? said Cassanunda with the reins in his hand. I was actually having a quality moment of misty nostalgic remembrance, said Ridcully. Not that any of you buggers noticed, of course. Ponder held the door open. Well, you know what they say, you can't cross the same river twice, Arch-Chancellor, he said. Ridcully stared at him. Why not? This is a bridge. On the roof of the coach, the librarian picked up the coach horn, bit the end of it reflectively, well, you never knew, and then blew it so hard that it uncurled. It was early morning in Lancre town, and it was more or less deserted. Farmers had got up hours before to curse and swear and throw a bucket at the cows, and had then gone back to bed. The sound of the horn bounced off the houses. Ridcully leapt out of the coach and took a deep, theatrical breath. "'Can't you smell that?' he said. "'That's real fresh mountain air, that is.' He thumped his chest. "'I've just trodden in something rural,' said Ponder. "'Where is the castle, sir?' "'I think it could be that huge black towering thing looming over the town,' said Casanunda. The Arch-Chancellor stood in the middle of the square and turned slowly with his arms spread wide. "'See that tavern?' he said. "'Ha!' "'If I had a penny for every time they threw me out of there, I'd have five dollars and thirty-eight pence. "'And over there is the old forge, and there's Mrs. Percy Fleur's where I had lodgings. "'See that peak up there? That's Copperhead, that is. "'I climbed that one day with old Carbonaceous the Troll. "'Oh, great days, great days. "'And see that wood down there on the hill?' "'That's where she—' "'His voice trailed into a mumble. "'Oh, my word, it all comes back to me. "'What a summer that was. "'They don't make them like that any more,' he sighed. "'You know,' he said, "'I'd give anything to walk through those woods with her again. "'There were so many things we never—' "'Oh, well, <clears throat> come on.' 
Ponder looked around at Lankra. He'd been born and raised in Ankh-Morpork. As far as he was concerned, the countryside was something that happened to other people, and most of them had four legs. As far as he was concerned, the countryside was like raw chaos before the universe, which was to say something with cobbles and walls, something civilised, was created. This is the capital city, he said. More or less, said Casanunda, who tended to feel the same way about places that weren't paved. I bet there's not a single delicatessen anywhere, said Ponder. And the beer here, said Ridcully, the beer here, well, you just better taste the beer here. And there's stuff called scumble. They make it from apples, and damned if I know what else they put in it, <laughs> except you daren't pour it into metal mugs. You ought to try it, Mr. Stibbons. It'd put hair on your chest. And yours. He turned to the next one down from the coach, who turned out to be the librarian. Book? Well, I, I should just drink anything you like in your case, said Ridcully. He hauled the mail sack down from the roof. What do we do with this? he said. There were ambling footsteps behind him, and he turned to see a short red-faced youth in ill-fitting and baggy chainmail, which made him look like a lizard that had lost a lot of weight very quickly. Where's the coach driver? said Shornog. He's uh, ill, said Ridcully. He had a sudden attack of bandits. What do we do with the mail? I take the palace stuff, and we generally leave the sack hanging up on a nail outside the tavern so that people can help themselves, said Sean. Isn't that dangerous, said Ponder. Don't think so, it's a strong nail, said Sean, rummaging in the sack. I mean, don't people steal letters? Oh, they wouldn't do that, they wouldn't do that. One of the witches go and stare at them if they did that. Sean stuffed a few packages under his arm and hung the sack on the aforesaid nail. Yes, that's another thing they used to have round here, said Ridcully. Witches. Let me tell you about the witches round here. Our mum's a witch, said Sean, conversationally, rummaging in the sack. As fine a body of women as you could hope to meet, said Ridcully, with barely a hint of mental gear clashing. And not a bunch of interfering power-mad old crones at all, whatever anyone might say. Are you here for the wedding? That's right. I'm the Arch-Chancellor of Unseen University. This is Mr. Stibbons, a wizard. This, where are you? Oh, there you are. This is Mr. Casanunda. Count, said Casanunda. I'm a count. Really? You never said. Well, you don't, do you? It's not the first thing you say. Ridcully's eyes narrowed. But I thought dwarfs didn't have titles, he said. I performed a small service for Queen Agantia of Skund, said Casanunda. Did you? My word. How small? Not that small. My word. And that's the bursar, and this is the librarian. Ridcully took a step backwards, waved his hands in the air, and silently mouthed the words, Don't say monkey. Pleased to meet you, said Sean politely. Ridcully felt moved to investigate. The librarian, he repeated. Yes, you said. Sean nodded at the orangutan. How'd you do? Ook. You might be wondering why he looks like that, Ridcully prompted. No, sir. No? My mum says none of us can help how we're made, said Sean. What a singular lady, and what is her name, said Ridcully. Mrs. Og, sir. Og? Og? Name rings a bell. Any relation to sobriety, Og? He was my dad, sir. Good grief, old sobriety's son. How is the old devil? Do you know, sir, what with him being dead? Oh, dear. How, uh, how long ago? These past thirty years, said Sean. But you don't look any older than twenty, Ponder began. Ridcully elbowed him sharply in the ribcage. This is the countryside, he hissed. People do things differently here. And more often. He turned back to Sean's pink and helpful face. Things seem to be waking up a bit, he said, and indeed shutters were coming down around the square. We'll get some breakfast in the tavern. They used to do wonderful breakfasts. He sniffed again and beamed. Now that, he said, is what I call fresh air. Sean looked around carefully. Yes, sir, he said. That's what we call it, too. There was the sound of someone frantically running, and then a pause, and King Verence II appeared around the corner, walking slowly and calmly with a very red face. "'Certainly gives people a rosy complexion,' said Ridcully cheerfully. "'It's the king,' hissed Sean, "'and me without me trumpet.' "'Um,' said Verence, 
Post bean yet, Sean? Oh, yes, sire, said Sean, almost as flustered as the king. Got it right here. Don't you worry about it. I'll open it all up and have it on your desk right away, sire. Um, something the matter, sire? Uh, I think perhaps... Sean was already tearing at the wrappers. Here's that book on etiquette you've been waiting for, sire, and the pig stock book, and... Ooh, what's this one? Verence made a grab for it. Sean automatically tried to hang on to it. The wrapping split, and the large, bulky book thumped onto the cobbles. Its fluttering pages played their woodcuts to the breeze. They looked down. Wow, said Sean. My word, said Ridcully. Um, said the king. Ooh. Sean picked up the book very, very carefully and turned a few pages. Hey, look at this one. He's doing it with his feet. I didn't know you could do it with your feet. He nudged Ponder Stibbons. Look, sir. Ridcully peered at the king. You all right, Your Majesty? He said. Verence squirmed. Um, and Luke, here's one with both chaps are doing it with sticks. What? said Verence. Wow, said Sean. Thank you, sire. This is going to really come in handy, I can tell you. I mean, I've picked up bits and pieces here and there, but... Verence snatched the book from Sean's hands and looked at the title page. Martial arts. Martial arts. But I'm sure I wrote marital... Sire? There was one exquisite moment while Verence fought for mental balance, but he won. Ah, yes, right. Uh, yes, of course. Uh... Well, you see, a well-trained army is essential to the security of any kingdom. That's right. Yes, fine. Magret and me, we thought, um... Yes, it's for you, Sean. I'll start practising right away, sire. Um, good. Jason Ogg awoke and wished he hadn't. Let's be clear, many authorities have tried to describe a hangover. Dancing elephants and so on are often employed for this purpose. The descriptions never work. They always smack of, ho ho, here's one for the lads, let's have some hangover machismo. Ho ho, landlord, another 19 pints of lager, hey, we supped some stuff last night, ho ho. Anyway, you can't describe a scumble hangover. The best bit of it is a feeling that your teeth have dissolved and coated themselves on your tongue. Eventually, the blacksmith sat up and opened his eyes. Insert the usual red-hot curried marbles description here, if you like. His clothes were soaked with dew. His head felt full of wisps and whispers. He stared at the stones. The scumble jar was lying in the heather. After a moment or two, he picked it up and took an experimental swig. It was empty. He nudged Weaver in the ribs with his boot. "'Wake up, you old bugger. We've been here all night.' One by one, the Morris men made the short but painful journey into consciousness. I'm going to get some stick from our Eva when I get home, moaned Carter. You might not, said Thatcher, who was on his hands and knees looking for his hat. Maybe when you get home she'll have married someone else, eh? Maybe a hundred years will have gone past, said Carter, hopefully. Cool, I hope so, said Weaver, brightening up. I had sevenpence invested in the thrift bank down in Ahulan. I'll be a millionaire at complicated interest. I'll be as rich as creosote. "'Who's Creosote?' said Thatcher. "'Famous rich bugger,' said Baker, fishing one of his boots out of a peat pool. "'Foreign.' "'Wasn't he the one everything he touched turned to gold?' said Carter. "'Nah, that was someone else. Some king or other. That's what happens in foreign parts. One minute you're all right, the next minute everything you touch turns to gold. He was plagued with it.' Carter looked puzzled. "'How did he manage when he had to... Uh... Let that be a lesson to you, young Carter, said Baker. You stay here where folks are sensible, not go gadding off abroad where you might suddenly be holding a fortune in your hands and not have anything to spend it on. We've <laughs> slept out here all night, said Jason uncertainly. That's dangerous, that is. You're right there, Mr. Ogg, said Carter. I think something went to the toilet in my ear. I mean, strange things can enter your head. That's what I mean, too. Jason blinked. He was certain he'd dreamed. He could remember dreaming, but he couldn't remember what the dream had been about. But there was still the feeling in his head of voices talking to him, but too far away to be heard. Oh, well, he said, managing to stand up at a third attempt. Probably no harm done. Let's get on home and see what century it is. What century is it, anyway? said Thatcher. Century of the fruit bat, isn't it? said Baker. 
might not be any more, said Carter, hopefully. It turned out that it was indeed the century of the fruit bat. Lancre didn't have much use for units of time any smaller than an hour or larger than a year, but people were clearly putting up bunting in the town square, and a gang of men were erecting the maypole. Someone was nailing up a very badly painted picture of Verence and Magrat, under which was the slogan, "'Gods bless their majesties.' With hardly a word exchanged, the men parted and staggered their separate ways. A hare lolloped through the morning mists until it reached the drunken ancient cottage in its clearing in the woods. It reached a tree stump between the privy and the herbs. Most woodland animals avoided the herbs. This was because animals that didn't avoid the herbs over the last fifty years had tended not to have descendants. A few tendrils waved in the breeze, and this was odd because there wasn't any breeze. It sat on the stump. And then there was a sensation of movement. Something left the hair and moved across the air to an open upstairs window. It was invisible, at least to normal eyesight. The hair changed. Before, it had moved with purpose. Now it flopped down and began to wash its ears. After a while, the back door opened and Granny Weatherwax walked out stiffly, holding a bowl of bread and milk. She put it down on the step and turned back without a second glance, closing the door again behind her. The hare hopped closer. It's hard to know if animals understand obligations or the nature of transactions, but that doesn't matter. They're built into witchcraft. If you want to really upset a witch, do her a favour which she has no means of repaying. The unfulfilled obligation will nag at her like a hangnail. Granny Weatherwax had been riding the hare's mind all night. Now she owed it something. There'd be bread and milk left outside for a few days. You had to repay, good or bad. There was more than one type of obligation. That's what people never really understood, she told herself as she stepped back into the kitchen. Magrat hadn't understood it, nor that new girl. Things had to balance. You couldn't set out to be a good witch or a bad witch. It never worked for long. All you could try to be was a witch, as hard as you could. She sat down by the cold hearth and resisted a temptation to comb her ears. They had broken in somewhere. She could feel it in the trees, in the minds of tiny animals. She was planning something, something soon. There was, of course, nothing special about midsummer in the occult sense, but there was in the minds of people, and the minds of people was where elves were strong. Granny knew that sooner or later she'd have to face the queen, not Magrat, but the real queen, and she would lose. She'd worked all her life on controlling the insides of her own head. She'd prided herself on being the best there was, but no longer. Just when she needed all her self-reliance, she couldn't rely on her mind. She could sense the probing of the Queen. She could remember the feel of that mind from all those decades ago, and she seemed to have her usual skill at borrowing. But herself. If she didn't leave little notes for herself, she'd be totally at sea. Being a witch meant knowing exactly who you were and where you were, and she was losing the ability to know both. Last night she'd found herself setting the table for two people. She'd tried to walk into a room she didn't have and soon she'd have to fight an elf. If you fought an elf and lost, then, if you were lucky, you would die. Magrat was brought breakfast in bed by a giggling Millie Chillum. Guests are arriving already, ma'am, and there's flags and everything down in the square, and Sean has found the coronation coach. How can you lose a coach, said Magrat. It was locked up in, in one of the old stables, ma'am. He's given it a fresh coat of gold paint right now. But we're going to be married here, said Magrat. We don't have to go anywhere. The king said perhaps you could both ride around a bit. Maybe as far as badass, he said, with Sean Og as a military escort, so people can wave and shout hooray and then come back here. Magrat put on her dressing gown and crossed to the tower window. She could see down over the outer walls and into Lancre Town Square, which was already quite full of people. It would have been a market day in any case, but people were erecting benches as well, and the maypole was already up. There were even a few dwarfs and trolls, politely maintaining a distance from one another. I just saw a monkey walk across the square, said Magrat. The whole world's coming to Lancre, said Millie, who had once been as far as Slice. Magrat caught sight of the distant picture of herself and her fiancé. This is stupid, she said to herself, but Millie heard her and was shocked. What can you mean, ma'am? Magrat spun round. All this for me. Millie backed away in sudden fright. 
I'm just Magrette Garlic. Kings ought to marry princesses and duchesses and people like that. People who are used to it. I don't want people shouting hooray just because I've gone by in a coach. And especially not people who've known me all my life. All this, this... Her frantic gesture took in the hated garde-robe, the huge four-poster bed, and the dressing room full of stiff and expensive clothes. These stuff. It's not for me. It's for some kind of idea. Didn't you ever get those cutouts, those dolls, you know, when you were a girl? Dolls you cut out. And there were cut-out clothes as well. And you could make her anything you wanted. That's me. It's like... It's like the bees. I'm being turned into a queen whether I want it or not. That's what's happening to me. I'm sure the king bought you all those nice clothes because I don't just mean the clothes. I mean, people would be shouting hooray if, if anyone went past in the coach. But you were the one who fell in love with the king, ma'am, said Millie bravely. Magrat hesitated for a moment. She'd never quite analysed that emotion. Eventually she said, No, he wasn't a king then. No one knew he was going to be a king. He was just a sad, nice little man in a cap and bells who everyone ignored. Millie backed away a bit more. I expect it's nerves, ma'am, she gabbled. Everyone feels nervous on the day before their wedding. Shall I, shall I see if I can make you some herbal? I'm not nervous, and I can do my own herbal tea if I happen to want any. Cook's very particular who goes into the herb garden, ma'am, said Millie. I've seen that herb garden. It's all leggy sage and yellowy parsley. If you can't stuff it up a chicken's bum, she doesn't think it's a herb. Anyway, who's queen in this vicinity? I thought you didn't want to be, ma'am, said Millie. Magrat stared at her. For a moment she looked as if she was arguing with herself. Millie might not have been the best informed girl in the world, but she wasn't stupid. She was at the door and threw it just as the breakfast tray hit the wall. Magrat sat down on the bed with her head in her hands. She didn't want to be queen. Being a queen was like being an actor, and Magrat had never been any good at acting. She'd always felt she wasn't very good at being Magrat if it came to that. The bustle of the pre-nuptial activities rose up from the town. There'd be folk dancing, of course. There seemed to be no way of preventing it. And probably folk singing would be perpetrated. And there'd be dancing bears and comic jugglers and the greasy pole competition, which for some reason Nanny Og always won, and bowling with a pig and the bran tub, which Nanny Og usually ran. It was a brave man who plunged his hand into a bran tub stocked by a witch with a broad sense of humour. Magrat had always liked the fairs, up until now. Well, there were still some things she could do. She dressed herself up in her commoner's clothes for the last time, and let herself out and down the back stairs to the Widdershin's tower and the room where dear Amanda lay. Magrat had instructed Sean to keep a good fire going in the grate, and dear Amanda was still sleeping peacefully, the unwakeable sleep. Magrat couldn't help noticing that dear Amanda was strikingly good-looking, and from what she'd heard, quite brave enough to stand up to Granny Weatherwax. She could hardly wait to get her better so that she could envy her properly. The wound seemed to be healing up nicely, but there seemed to be... Magrat strode to the bell-pull in the corner and hauled on it. After a minute or two, Sean Og arrived, panting. There was gold paint on his hands. "'What?' said Magrat. "'Are all these things?' "'Um, don't like to say, ma'am.' "'One happens to be very nearly the Queen,' said Magrat. "'Yes, but the King said... well, well, Granny said.' "'Granny Weatherwax does not happen to rule the kingdom,' said Magrat. "'She hated herself when she spoke like this, but it seemed to work.' "'And anyway, she's not here. "'One is here, however, "'and if you don't tell one what's going on, "'I'll see to it that you do all the dirty jobs around the palace.' "'But I do all the dirty jobs anyway,' said Sean. "'I shall see to it that there are dirtier ones.' "'Magrat picked up one of the bundles. "'It was made up of strips of sheet "'wrapped around what turned out to be an iron bar. "'They're all around her,' she said. "'Why?' "'Sean looked at his feet.' There was gold paint on his boots, too. Well, our mum said... Yes? Our mum said I was to see to it that there was iron around her. So me and Millie got some bars from down the smithy and wrapped them up like this, and Millie packed them round her. Why? To keep away the... the... lords and ladies, ma'am. What? That's just old superstition. Anyway, everyone knows elves were good, whatever Granny Weatherwax says. 
Behind her, Sean flinched. Magrat pulled the wrapped iron lumps out of the bed and tossed them into the corner. No old wives' tales here, thank you very much. Is there anything else people haven't been telling me, by any chance? Sean shook his head, guiltily aware of the thing in the dungeon. <laughs> well, go away. Verence wants the kingdom to be modern and efficient, and that means no horseshoes and stuff around the place. Go on, go away. Yes, Miss Queen. At least I can do something positive around here, Magrat told herself. Yes. Be sensible. Go and see him. Talk. Magrat clung to the idea that practically anything could be sorted out if only people talked to one another. Sean? He paused at the door. Yes, ma'am? Has the king gone down to the great hall yet? I think he's still dressing, Miss Queen. He hasn't rung for me to do the trumpet, I know that. In fact, Verence, who didn't like going everywhere preceded by Sean's idea of a fanfare, had already gone downstairs incognito. But Magrat slipped along to his room and knocked on the door. Why be bashful? It'd be her room as well from tomorrow, wouldn't it? She tried the handle. It turned. Without quite willing it, Magrat went in. Rooms in the castle could hardly be said to belong to anyone in any case. They'd had too many occupants over the centuries. The very atmosphere was the equivalent of those walls scattered with outbreaks of drawing pin holes where last term's occupants hung the posters of rock groups long disbanded. You couldn't stamp your personality on that stone. It stamped back harder. For Magrat, stepping into a man's bedroom was like an explorer stepping onto that part of the map marked Here Be Dragons. In the case of the A Horseshoe street map of Ankh Morpork, this would be the sunshine home for sick dragons in Morphic Street. Please leave donations of coal by side door. Remember, a dragon is for life, not just for Hogswatch night. And it wasn't exactly what it ought to have been. Verence had arrived at the bedroom concept fairly late in life. When he was a boy, the entire family slept on straw in the cottage attic. As an apprentice in the Guild of Joculators, he'd slept on a pallet in a long dormitory of other sad, beaten young men. When he was a fully-fledged fool, he'd slept by tradition, curled up in front of his master's door. Suddenly, at a later age than is usual, he'd been introduced to the notion of soft mattresses. And now Magrat was privy to the big secret. It hadn't worked. There was the great bed of Lancre, which was said to be able to sleep a dozen people, although in what circumstances and why it should be necessary, history had never made clear. It was huge, and made of oak. It was also, very clearly, unslept in. Magrat pulled back the sheets and smelled the scorched smell of linen. But it also smelled unaired, as if it hadn't been slept in. She stared around the room until her eye lit on the little still life by the door. There was a folded nightshirt, a candlestick, and a small pillow. As far as Verence had been concerned, a crown merely changed which side of the door you slept. Oh, gods! He'd always slept in front of the door of his master, and now he was king, he slept in front of the door to his kingdom. Magrat felt her eyes fill with tears. You couldn't help loving someone as soppy as that. Fascinated and aware that she was where she technically shouldn't be, Magrat blew her nose and explored further. A heap of discarded garments by the bed suggested that Verence had mastered the art of hanging up clothes as practised by half the population of the world, and also that he had equally had difficulty with the complex topological manoeuvres necessary to turn his socks the right way out. There was a tiny dressing table and a mirror. Stuck to the mirror frame was a dried and faded flower that looked to Magrat very like the ones she habitually wore in her hair. She shouldn't have gone on looking, she admitted that to herself afterwards, but she seemed to have no self-control. There was a wooden bowl in the middle of the dresser table, full of odd coins, bits of string, and the general detritus of the nightly emptied pocket, and a folded paper, much folded, as if it had stayed in said pocket for some time. She picked it up and unfolded it. There were little kingdoms all over the hubward slopes of the ramtops. Every narrow valley, every ledge that something other than a goat could stand on, was a kingdom. There were kingdoms in the Ramtops so small that if they were ravaged by a dragon, and that dragon had been killed by a young hero, and the king had given him half his kingdom as per section three of the heroic code, then there wouldn't have been any kingdom left. There were wars of annexation that went on for years just because someone wanted a place to keep the coal. 
Lancre was one of the biggest kingdoms. He could actually afford a standing army. Sean Og. Except when he was lying down. Kings and queens and various suborders of aristocracy were even now streaming over Lancre Bridge, watched by a sulking and soaking wet troll who had given up on bridge-keeping for the day. The great hall had been thrown open. Jugglers and fire-eaters strolled among the crowd. Up in the minstrel's gallery, a small orchestra were playing the Lancre one-string fiddle and famed ram-top bagpipes, but fortunately they were more or less drowned out by the noise of the crowd. Nanny Og and Granny Weatherwax moved through, said crowd. In deference to this being a festive occasion, Nanny Og had exchanged her normal black pointy hat for one of the same shape, but in red, with wax cherries on it. "'All the ought monder here,' Nanny observed, taking a drink off a passing tray. "'Even some wizards from Ankh-Moor Pork. Our Sean said, "'One of them said I had a fine body,' he said. "'Been trying to remember all morning who that could have been.' "'Spoilt for choice,' said Granny, but it was an automatic nastiness, with no real heart to it. "'It worried Nanny Og. Her friend seemed preoccupied.' "'There's some gentry we don't want to see here,' said Granny. "'I won't be happy until all this is over.' Nanny Og craned to try and see over the head of a small emperor. "'Can't see Magrat around,' she said. "'There's Verence talking to some other kings, but can't see our Magrat at all. "'Our Sean said Millie Chillum said she was just a bag of nerves this morning.' "'All these high-born folks,' said Granny, looking around at the crowned heads. "'I feel like a fish out of water.' "'Well, the way I see it, it's up to you to make your own water,' said Nanny, picking up a cold-roast chicken leg from the buffet and stuffing it up her sleeve. "'Don't drink too much. We've got to keep alert, Gither. Remember what I said. Don't let yourself get distracted.' "'That's never the delectable Mrs. Og, is it?' Nanny turned. There was no one behind her. Uh, <clears throat> down here, said the voice. She looked down into a wide grin. Oh, blast, she said. It's me, Casanunda, said Casanunda, who was dwarfed still further by an enormous powdered wig. But not huge by wig standards. There have, in the course of decadent history, been many large wigs, often with built-in gewgaws to stop people having to look at boring hair all the time. There had been ones big enough to contain pet mice or clockwork ornaments. Mademoiselle Cupidor, mistress of Mad King Soup II, had one with a birdcage in it, but on special state occasions wore one containing a perpetual calendar, a floral clock, and a takeaway linguine shop. You remember? We danced the night away in Genua? No, we didn't. Well, we could have done. "'Fancy you turning up here,' said Nanny, weakly. "'The thing about Casanunda, she recalled, "'was that the harder you slapped him down, the faster he bounced back, "'often in an unexpected direction. "'Our stars are entwined,' said Casanunda. "'We're fated for one another. "'I want your body, Mrs. Hogg. "'I'm still using it.' And while she suspected quite accurately that this was an approach the world's second greatest lover used on anything that appeared to be even vaguely female, Nanny Og had to admit that she was flattered. She'd had many admirers in her younger days, but time had left her with a body that could only be called comfortable and a face like Mr. Grape the Happy Raisin. Long-banked fires gave off a little smoke. Besides, she'd rather liked Casanunda. Most men were oblique in their approach, whereas his direct attack was refreshing. It'd never work, she said. We're basically incompatible. When I'm five foot four, you'll still only be three foot nine. Anyway, I'm old enough to be your mother. You can't be. My mother's nearly three hundred, and she's got a better beard than you. And, of course, that was another point. By dwarf standards, Nanny Og was hardly more than a teenager. La, sir, she said, giving him a playful tap that made his ears ring. You do know how to turn a simple country girl's head and no mistake. Casanunda picked himself up and adjusted his wig happily. I like a girl with spirit, he said. How about you and me having a little tete-a-tete when this is over? Nanny Og's face went blank. Her cosmopolitan grip of language had momentarily let her down. Uh, excuse me a minute, she said. She put her drink down on his head and pushed through the crowd until she found a likely-looking duchess and prodded her in the bustle regions. "'Eh, hey, your grace, what's a tater tate?' "'I beg your pardon?' 
A tete-a-tete. Do you do it with your clothes on, or what? It means an intimate meeting, my good woman. Oh, is that all? Oh, ta. Nannyog elbowed her way back to the vibrating dwarf. You're on, she said. I thought we could have a little private dinner, just you and me, said Casanunda, in one of the <laughs> taverns. Never in a long history of romance had Nanny Og ever been taken out for an intimate dinner. Her courtships had been more noted for their quantity than their quality. Okay, was all she could think of to say. Dodge your chaperone and meet me at six o'clock. Nanny Og glanced at Granny Weatherwax, who was watching them disapprovingly from a distance. She's not my... she began. Then it dawned on her that Casanunda couldn't possibly have really thought that Granny Weatherwax was chaperoning her. Compliments and flattery had also been very minor components in the machinery of Nanny Og's courtships. Yes, all right, she said. And now I shall circulate so that people don't talk and ruin your reputation, said Casanunda, bowing and kissing Nanny Og's hand. Her mouth dropped open. No one had ever kissed her hand before either, and certainly no one had ever worried about her reputation, least of all Nanny Og. As the world's second greatest lover bustled off to accost a countess, Granny Weatherwax, who had been watching from a discreet distance, i.e. far enough so as not to look like you're intruding on the conversation, but close enough to get a pretty good idea of what is going on, said in an amiable voice, You haven't got the morals of a cat, Githa Og. Now, Esme, you know that's not true. All right, you have got the morals of a cat, then. That's better. Nanny Og patted her mass of white curls and wondered if she had time to go home and put a corsets on. We must stay on our guard, Githa. Yes, yes. Can't let other considerations turn our heads. No, no. You're not listening to a word I say, are you? What? You could at least find out why Magrat isn't down here. Oh, all right. Nanny Og wandered off dreamily. Granny Weatherwax turned, and there should have been violins. The murmur of the crowd should have faded away, and the crowd itself should have parted in a quite natural movement to leave an empty path between her and Ridcully. There should have been violins, Well, there should have been something. There shouldn't have been the librarian accidentally knuckling her on the toe on his way to the buffet, but this, in fact, there was. She hardly noticed. <gasps> Esme, said Ridcully. Mastrum, said Granny Weatherwax. Nanny Og bustled up. Esme, I saw Millie Chillum, and she said... Granny Weatherwax's vicious elbow jab winded her. Nanny took in the scene. Oh, she said, I'll just, um, I'll just, I'll, I'll just go away then. The gazes locked again. The librarian knuckled past again with an entire display of fruit. Granny Weatherwax paid him no heed. The bursar, who was currently on the median point of his cycle, tapped Ridcully on the shoulder. I say, Arch-Chancellor, these quail's eggs are amazingly good. Drop dead. Mr. Stibbons, fish out the frog pills and keep knives away from him, please. The gazes locked again. Well, well, said Granny, after a year or so. This must be some enchanted evening, said Ridcully. Yes, that's what I'm afraid of. That really is you, isn't it? It's really me, said Granny. You haven't changed a bit, Esme. Nor have you, then. You're still a rotten liar, Mustrum Ridcully. They walked towards one another. The librarian shuttled between them with a tray of meringues. Behind them, Ponder Stibbons grovelled on the floor for a spilled bottle of dried frog pills. Well, well, said Ridcully. Fancy that. Small world, yes, indeed. You're you, and I'm me. Amazing. And it's here, and now. Yes, but then was then. I sent you a lot of letters, said Ridcully. Never got em. There was a glint in Ridcully's eye. That's odd. And there was me putting all those destination spells on em too, he said. He gave her a critical up-and-down glance. How much do you weigh, Esme? Not a spare ounce on you, I'll be bound. What do you want to know for? Indulge an old man. Nine stones, then. Hmm. 
Should be about right. Three miles hubwards. You'll feel a slight lurch to the left. Nothing to worry about. In a lightning movement, he grabbed her hand. He felt young and light-headed. The wizards back at the university would have been astonished. Let me take you away from all this. He snapped his fingers. There has to be at least an approximate conservation of mass. It's a fundamental magical rule. If something is moved from A to B, something that was at B has got to find itself at A. And then there's momentum. Slow as the disk spins, various points of its radii are moving at different speeds relative to the hub, and a wizard projecting himself any distance towards the rim had better be prepared to land jogging. The three miles to Lankara Bridge merely involved a faint tug, which Ridcully had been ready for, and he landed up, leaning against the parapet with Esme Weatherwax in his arms. The customs troll, who had until a fraction of a second previously been sitting there, ended up lying full length on the floor of the Great Hall, coincidentally on top of the bursa. Granny Weatherwax looked over at the rushing water, and then at Ridcully. "'Take me back this instant,' she said. "'You've got no right to do that.' Dear me, I seem to have run out of power. Can't understand it. Very embarrassing. Fingers gone all limp, said Ridcully. Of course we could walk. It's a lovely evening. You always did get lovely evenings here. It was all fifty or sixty years ago, said Granny. You can't suddenly turn up and say all those years haven't happened. Oh, I know they've happened all right, said Ridcully. I'm the head wizard now. I've only got to give an order, and a thousand wizards will, um, will disobey, come to think of it, or say, what, or start to argue. But they have to take notice. I've been to that university a few times, said Granny. A bunch of fat old men in beards. That's right, that's them. A lot of them come from the ram tops, said Granny. I knew a few boys from Lancre who became wizards. Very magical area, Ridcully agreed. Something in the air. Below them, the cold black waters raced, always dancing to gravity, never flowing uphill. There was even a weatherwax as arch-chancellor years ago, said Ridcully. So I understand. Distant cousin. Never knew him, said Granny. They both stared down at the river for a moment. Occasionally a twig or a branch would whirl along in the current. Do you remember? I have a, a, a very good memory, thank you. Do you ever wonder what life would have been like if you'd said yes? said Ridcully. No. I suppose we'd have settled down, had children, grandchildren, that sort of thing? Granny shrugged. It was the sort of thing romantic idiots said. But there was something in the air tonight. What about the fire? she said. What fire? "'Swept through our house just after we were married. "'Killed us both. "'What fire? "'I don't know anything about any fire.' "'Granny turned around. "'Of course not. "'It didn't happen. "'But the point is, it might have happened. "'You can't say, if this didn't happen, "'then that would have happened, "'because you don't know everything that might have happened. "'You might think something would be good, "'but for all you know, it could have turned out horrible. "'You can't say, if only I'd... "'because you could be wishing for anything. "'The point is, you'll never know. "'You've gone past, so there's no use thinking about it. "'So I don't.' "'The trousers of time,' said Ridcully moodily. "'He picked a fragment off the crumbling stonework "'and dropped it into the water. "'It went plunk, as is so often the case. "'What? "'That's the sort of thing they go on about "'in the high-energy magic building, "'and they call themselves wizards.' You should hear them talk. The buckers wouldn't know a magic sword if it bit them on the knee. That's young wizards today. They think they bloody invented magic. Yes, you should see the girls that want to be witches these days, said Granny Weatherwax. Velvet hats and black lipstick and lacy gloves with no fingers to them. Cheeky, too. They were side by side now, watching the river. Trousers of time, said Ridcully. One of you goes down one leg, one of you goes down the other. And there's all these continuinuinuums all over the place. When I was a lad, there was just one decent universe, and this was it. And all you had to worry about was creatures breaking through from the dungeon dimensions. But at least there was this actual damn universe, and you knew where you stood. Now it turns out there's, 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 there's millions of the damn things. And there's this damn cat. 
fact, they've discovered, that you can put in a box and it's dead and alive at the same time, or something. And they all run around saying, Marvellous, marvellous, hooray, here comes another quantum. Ask them to do a decent levitation spell and they look at you as if you've started to dribble. You should hear young Stibbons talk. Went on about me not inviting me to my own wedding. Me! From the side of the gorge, a kingfisher flashed, hit the water with barely a ripple, and ricocheted away with something silver and wriggly in its beak. Kept going on about everything happening at the same time, Ridcully went on morosely. Like there's no such thing as a choice. You just decide which leg you're heading for. He says that we did get married, see? He says all the things that might have been have to be. So there's thousands of me out there who never became a wizard, just like there's thousands of you who, oh, answered letters. Ha! To them, we are something that might have been. Now, do you call that proper thinking for a growing lad? When I started wizarding, old Tudgy Spold was Arch-Chancellor, and if any young wizards even mentioned that sort of daft thing, he'd feel a, a, a staff across his backside. Hmm. Somewhere far below, a frog plopped off a stone. Mind you, I suppose we've all passed a lot of water since then. It dawned gently on Ridcully that the dialogue had become a monologue. He turned to Granny, who was staring round-eyed at the river, as if she'd never seen water before. Stupid, 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 she said. I beg your pardon? Uh, I was only... Not you. I wasn't talking to you. Stupid. I've been stupid. But I ain't been daft. Heh! And I thought it was my memory going. And it was too. It was going and fetching. What? I was getting scared. Me. And not thinking clear. Except I was thinking clear. What? Never mind. Well, I won't say this hasn't been um, uh, nice, said Granny, but I've got to get back. Do the things with the fingers again and hurry. Ridcully deflated a little. Um, can't, he said. You did it just now. That's the point. Um, I wasn't joking when I said I couldn't do it again. It takes a lot out of you, transmigration. You used to be able to do it all the time, as I recall, said Granny. She risked a smile. Our feet hardly touched the ground. I was younger then. Now, once is enough. Granny's boots creaked as she turned and started to walk quickly back towards the town. Ridcully lumbered after her. What's the hurry? Got important things to do, said Granny, without turning round. Been letting everyone down. Some people might say, this is important. No, it's just personal. Personal's not the same as important. People just think it is. "'You're doing it again. What?' "'I don't know what the other future would have been like,' said Ridcully, "'but I, for one, would have liked to have given it a try.' "'Granny paused. Her mind was crackling with relief. "'Should she tell him about the memories? "'She opened her mouth to do so, and then thought again. "'Nah, he'd get soppy. "'I'd have been crabby and bad-tempered,' she said instead. "'Well, that goes without saying. "'And what about you?' I'd have put up with all your womanising and drunkenness, would I? Ridcully looked bewildered. What womanising? We're talking about what might have been. But I'm a wizard. We hardly ever womanise. There's laws about it. Well, rules. Well, guidelines, anyway. But you wouldn't have been a wizard then. And I'm hardly ever drunk. You would have been if you'd been wedded to me. He caught up with her. Even young Ponder doesn't think like this, he said. You've made up your mind that it would have been dreadful, have you? Yes. Why? Why do you think? I asked you. Oh, I'm too busy for this, said Granny. Like I said, personal ain't the same as important. Make yourself useful, Mr Wizard. You know it's circle time, don't you? Ridcully's hand touched the brim of his hat. Oh, yes. And you know what that means? They tell me it means that the walls between realities get weaker. The circles are... What's the word Stibbons uses? Iso-reasons. They connect levels of... Oh, oh, something daft. Similar levels of reality, which is bloody stupid. You'd be able to walk from one universe to another. Ever tried it? No. 
The circle is a door half open. It doesn't need much to open it up all the way. Even belief will do it. That's why they put the dancers up years ago. We got the dwarfs to do it. Thunderbolt iron, those stones. There's something special about them. They've got the love of iron. Don't ask me how it works. Elves hate it even more than ordinary iron. It upsets their senses or something. But minds can get through. Elves? Everyone knows elves don't exist anymore. Not proper elves. I mean, I mean, there's a few folk who say they're elves. Oh, yes. Elvish ancestry. Elves and humans breed all right. As if that's anything to be proud of. But you just get a race of skinny types with pointy ears and a tendency to giggle and burn easily in sunshine. I ain't talking about them. There's no harm in them. I'm talking about real wild elves. What we ain't seen here for... The road from the bridge to the town curved between high banks, with the forest crowding in on either side, and in places even meeting overhead. Thick ferns already curling like green breakers lined the clay banks. They rustled. The unicorn leapt onto the road. Thousands of universes twisting together like a rope being plaited from threads. There's bound to be leakages, a sort of mental equivalent of the channel breakthrough on a cheap hi-fi that gets you the news in Swedish during quiet bits in the music. Especially if you've spent your life using your mind as a receiver. Picking up the thoughts of another human being is very hard because no two minds are on the same... wavelength. But somewhere out there, at the point where the parallel universes tangle, are a million minds just like yours, for a very obvious reason. Granny Weatherwax smiled. Millie Chillum and the King and one or two hangers-on were clustered around the door to Magrat's room when Nanny Og arrived. "'What's happening?' Uh, "'I know she's in there,' said Verence, holding his crown in his hands in the famous "'Ay, senor, Mexican bandits have raided our village' position. "'Millie heard her shout, "'Go away!' and I think she threw something at the door.' Nanny Og nodded sagely. "'Wedding nerves,' she said. "'Bound to happen!' "'But we're all going to attend the entertainment,' said Verence. "'She really ought to attend the entertainment.' "'Well, I don't know,' said Nanny. "'Seeing our Jason and the rest of them prancing about in straw wigs, "'I mean, they mean well, but it's not something a young... "'well, a fairly young girl has to see on the night before her nuptials.' "'You asked her to unlock the door?' "'I did better than that,' said Verence. "'I instructed her to.' "'That was right, wasn't it?' Even if Magrat won't obey me, I am a poor lookout as a king. Ah, said Nanny, after a moment's slow consideration. You've not entirely spent a lot of time in female company, have you? In a generalised sort of way. Well, I... The crown spun in Venance's nervous fingers. Not only had the bandits invaded the village, but the Magnificent Seven had decided to go bowling instead. Tell you what, said Nanny, patting him on the back. You go and preside over the entertainment and hobnob with the other knobs. I'll see to Magrat, don't you worry. I've been a bride three times, and that's only the official score. Yes, but she should. I think if we go easy on the shoulds, said Nanny, we might all make it to the wedding. Now, off you all go. Someone ought to stay here, said Verence. Sean will be on guard, but no one's going to invade, are they? said Nanny. Let me sort this out. Well, um, if you're sure. Go on. Nanny Og waited until she heard them go down the main staircase. After a while, a rattle of coaches and a general shouting suggested that the wedding party was leaving, minus the bride-to-be. She counted to a hundred under her breath. Then... Margaret? Go away! I know how it is, said Nanny. I was a bit worried on the night before my wedding. She refrained from adding, because there was a reasonable chance Jason would turn up as an extra guest. I am not worried. I am angry. Why? You know. Nanny took off her hat and scratched her head. You got me there, she said. And he knew. I know he knew. And I know who told him, said the muffled voice behind the door. It was all arranged. You must all have been laughing. Nanny frowned at the impassive woodwork. Nope, she said. Still all at sea, this end. Well, I'm not saying any more. Everyone's gone to the entertainment, said Nanny Og. No reply. 
And later, they'll be back. A further absence of dialogue. Then there'll be carousing and jugglers and, and fellows that put weasels down the trousers, said Nanny. Silence. And then it'll be tomorrow. And then what you're going to do? Silence. You can always go back to your cottage. No one's moved in. Or you can stop along with me if you like. But you'll have to decide, you see, because you can't stay locked in there. Nanny leaned against the wall. I remember years ago my granny telling me about Queen Ammonia. Well, I say queen, but she never was queen except for about three hours because of what I'm about to unfold. On account of them playing hide-and-seek at the wedding party and her hiding in a big heavy old chest in some attic and the lid slamming shut and no one finding her for seven months, by which time you could definitely say the wedding cake was getting a bit stale. Silence. Well, if you ain't telling me, I can't hang around all night, said Nanny. It'll all be better in the morning, you'll see. Silence. Why don't we have an early night, said Nanny. Our Sean'll do you a hot drink if you ring down. It's a bit nippy out here, to tell you the truth. It's amazing how these old stone places hang on to the chill. Silence. So, I'll be off then, shall I? said Nanny, to the unyielding silence. Not doing much good here. Can see that. Sure you don't want to talk? Silence. Stand before your god. Bow before your king and kneel before your man. Recipe for a happy life, that is, said Nanny to the world in general. Well, I'm going away now. Tell you what, I'll come back early tomorrow, help you get ready, that sort of thing. How about it? Silence. So... That's all sorted out, then, said Nanny. Cheerio. She waited a full minute. By rights, by the human mechanics of situations like this, the bolts should have been drawn back and Magrat should have peeped out into the corridor or possibly even called out to her. She did not. Nanny shook her head. She could think of at least three ways of getting into the room and only one of them involved going through the door. But there was a time and place for witchcraft and this wasn't it. Nanny Og had led a long and generally happy life by knowing when not to be a witch, and this was one of those times. She went down the stairs and out of the castle. Sean was standing guard at the main gate, surreptitiously practising karate chops on the evening air. He stopped and looked embarrassed as Nanny Og approached. "'Wish I was going to the entertainment, Mum.' Oh, "'I dare say the King will be very generous to you, compared on account of your duty,' said Nanny Og. "'Remind me to remind him.' "'Aren't you going?' "'Well, um... "'I'm just going for a stroll into town,' said Nanny. "'I expect Esme went with them, did she?' "'Couldn't say, Mum.' "'Just a, a few things I've got to do.' She hadn't gone much further before a voice behind her said, "'Hello, O moon of my delight.' Ooh, you do sneak up on people, Cassanunda. "'I've arranged for us to have dinner at the Golden Bush,' said the dwarf Count." "'Ooh, that's a horrible expensive place,' said Nanny Og. "'Never eaten there. "'They've got some special provisions in, "'what with the wedding and all the gentry here,' said Casanunda. "'I've made special arrangements.' "'These had been quite difficult. "'Food as an aphrodisiac was not a concept "'that had ever caught on in Lancre, "'apart from Nanny Og's famous carrot and oyster pie. "'Carrots, so that you can see in the dark,' she'd explain, "'and oysters, so you've got something to look at.' As far as the cook at the Goat and Bush was concerned, food and sex were only linked in certain humorous gestures involving things like cucumbers. He'd never heard of chocolate, banana skins, avocado and ginger, marshmallow and the thousand other foods people have occasionally employed to drive an A to B freeway through the rambling pathways of romance. Casanunda had spent a busy ten minutes sketching out a detailed menu and quite a lot of money had changed hands. He'd arranged a careful, romantic, candlelit supper. Casanunda had always believed in the art of seduction. Many tall women, accessible by stepladder across the continent, had reflected how odd it was that the dwarfs, a race to whom the aforesaid art of seduction consisted in the main part of tactfully finding out what sex underneath all that leather and chainmail another dwarf was, had generated someone like Casanunda. It was as if Eskimos had produced a natural expert in the care and attention of rare tropical plants. 
The great pent-up waters of dwarfish sexuality had found a leak at the bottom of the dam, small, but with enough power to drive a dynamo. Everything that his fellow dwarfs did very occasionally as nature demanded, he did all the time, sometimes in the back of a sedan chair, and once upside down in a tree. But, and this is important, with care and attention to detail that was typically dwarfish. Dwarfs would spend months working on an exquisite piece of jewellery, and, for broadly similar reasons, Casanunda was a popular visitor to many courts and palaces, for some strange reason, generally while the local lord was away. He also had a dwarfish ability with locks, always a useful talent for those awkward moments sur la boudoir. And Nanny Og was an attractive lady, which is not the same as being beautiful. She fascinated Casanunda. She was an incredibly comfortable person to be around, partly because she had a mind so broad it could accommodate three football fields and a bowling alley. "'I wish I had my crossbow,' muttered Ridcully. "'With that head on my wall, I'd always have a place to hang my hat.' <laughs> the unicorn tossed its head and pawed the ground. Steam rose from its flanks. "'I ain't sure that would work,' said Granny. "'You sure you've got no whoosh left in them fingers of yours?' "'I could create an illusion,' said the wizard. "'That's not hard.' "'It wouldn't work. The unicorn is an elvish creature. Magic don't work on them. They see through illusions. They ought to. They're good enough at them. "'How about the bank? Reckon you could scramble up it?' They both glanced at the banks. They were red clay, slippery as priests. "'Let's walk backwards,' said Granny, slowly. "'How about its mind? Can you get in?' There's someone in there already. The poor thing's her pet. It obeys only her. The unicorn walked after them, trying to watch both of them at the same time. Uh, but, but what shall we do when we come to the bridge? You can still swim, can't you? The river's a long way down. But there's a deep pool there, don't you remember? You dived in there once, one moonlit night. I was young and foolish then. Well... You're old and foolish now. I thought unicorns were more fluffy. See clear. Don't let the glamour get you. See what's in front of your eyes. It's a damn great horse with a horn on the end, said Granny. End of CD 5